Let's turn to Ephesians chapter 6, and tonight we finish the book. It's our 13th week in the book. We finish it tonight, and then uh, our next study will be in the Old Testament book of 1 Kings. So you might want to read the first couple of chapters and get ready for Adonijah and Solomon and David and the shifting of the kingdom. Of all of the descriptions of a Christian, the word fighter probably wouldn't immediately come to mind. If people were to think of a description of a Christian, they might first think of a peacemaker, one who's gentle, one who loves. When one wears the little armband or the slogan on the bumper sticker or the t-shirt, WWJD, what would Jesus do? We don't have in our minds a warrior. But chapter 6 places us on the battlefield and shows us that the Christian life is not a playground but a battleground. Donald Gray Barnhouse called it the invisible war. He wrote a book with that title. This cosmic conflict for the hearts and minds, the very lives of human beings. It's been waging for thousands of years, and it still wages tonight. The day you came to Christ, do you remember it in your mind, the day or the night? Maybe it was a few months ago. Maybe it was a couple weeks ago. Or maybe it was very long ago, but there are highlights of that day you remember. That was the day... You waved the white flag of surrender. You quit fighting God. You gave him your life. And that was the day you were saved. That was the day peace came into your life. That was the day new direction and abundant life became yours. It was a whole new start. But that was the day you entered the arena of the Christian battlefield. Up to that point, you had been in a battle, a cosmic battle for your soul. On that day, Satan lost. But he doesn't give up that easily. Now that you belong to Christ, he would love nothing more than to make you impotent as a believer. To make you spiritually blasé. To steal some of your commitment. To make you doubt. To make you less fervent to do everything he can to trip you up so that you won't be effective for the Lord. You see, on that day, when you became God's friend, in a very true sense of fellowship, you inherited God's enemy. And that's where this conflict takes us here in chapter 6 of the book of Ephesians. The Christian warfare, or the, um, the battle of the believer. Paul the Apostle used a metaphor, a military metaphor, quite frequently. Now, now, there's a good reason for this. In fact, you would even say it would be expected. After all, for part of his imprisonment in Rome, he was chained to a Roman soldier. He was chained to a dude that looked like this guy right here. And so he could look in his mind at the helmet, at the breastplate, at the sword, at the shield at all of these pieces of armor that would be reminiscent of a spiritual truth. 
And in writing that, people who knew the Roman government and the Roman soldiers who occupied their land would be quick to pick up on those truths. So it's very picturesque. And Paul uses the terminology of warfare quite a bit. It's in the Bible a lot in the New Testament. Fight the good fight of faith, Paul said. Lay hold of eternal life. He wrote to young Timothy and he said, You must endure hardship as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. At the end of his life, he said, I have fought the good fight. I have run the race. I have finished the course. Even Jesus alluded to it when he said, The gates of hell will not prevail against the church. The idea of prevailing against or the gates prevailing was the idea of a of a army attacking a city with a battering ram this huge log attached to a pulley that would bang against the gate open a portal to the city and allow the army to come in and destroy it so the terminology is not new to the new testament it's found all over the new testament In chapter 1 through 3, and let me just give you a little bit of the background and highlight before we jump into this, so you in your mind will never forget it. By now, you shouldn't ever forget the outline of Ephesians. It is the wealth, the walk, and the warfare of the believer. That's how we outlined it every week so far. The wealth, the walk, the warfare of the believer. That's how the book flows. Chapters 1 through 3 give you... That's the first section, the wealth, who you are and what you have as a believer, what God has done for you, provided for you, given to you. That's the emphasis. Chapter 1 opens up in the courts of heaven, so to speak. We're seated with Christ in heavenly places. Chapter 2 takes us to the bank, you might say, where we're told about the riches in Christ and the great riches of his grace, God who is rich in mercy. Chapter 3 takes us to the living room where we meet the family of God, Jew and Gentile, that comprise his church. The barriers are broken down and we're all one in Christ. That takes us then to the second section of the book, which is the walk of the believer. If the first section of the book is the emphasis of what God has done for you, given to you, provided for you, the second section has as its emphasis how you and I should live in the light of who we are and what we have in Christ. The emphasis is on what we do, not for him as much as through the power, through the riches that he's given to us. So chapter 4 takes us to the shoe store. The truths of chapters 1 through 3, we're told to walk in them. And that's the emphasis. Chapter 4 is how to walk in unity in the church, how to walk with integrity in the world. Chapter 5, walk in love, walk in the light, walk in wisdom, and how to walk in the home. Husbands and wives, parents and children, slaves to their masters in the workplace. Takes us into chapter 6. Now we come to section 3. Wealth, walk, and now the warfare of the believer. If you appropriate the riches in Christ, if you walk in them and walk in light and walk in love, walk in wisdom, 
you are inviting trouble. You're sort of painting a bullseye on you as you walk around. I mean, if you think about it, in a cosmic point of view, from, from a, a strategic viewpoint, once you decide, Lord Jesus, I'm going to follow you with all of my heart, I'm going to obey you and do whatever you want me to do, do you think Satan will give you a standing ovation for that attitude? Oh, no. Here come the fiery darts. So, let's look at our section tonight. We're going to read from chapter 6, verse 10, to the end of the book. Finally, my brethren. Now, you know, Paul often says the word finally, and he doesn't always mean finally. Preachers do that a lot. Sometimes he means finally, what I want to say about this idea is that. And then he'll move on to a different idea. But here he means finally. This is the last portion of the book. Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand. Stand, therefore, having girded your waist with truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace, above all, taking the shield of faith, with which you will be able to quench all of the fiery darts of the wicked one. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit, being watchful to this end with all perseverance and supplication for all the saints. And for me, that utterance may be given to me, that I may open my mouth boldly to make known the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains, that in it I may speak boldly as I ought to speak. The first thing we are introduced to in this last closing section of the book is who our enemy is. He's mentioned in verse 10 and 11. He talks about the wiles of the devil. The first thing you want to make sure you know before going into battle is who you're fighting. That's called military intelligence. They gather who the enemy is, what the enemy is like, what his strategy is. You just don't want to launch into battle because somebody says, we're on the battlefield. You don't just swing your sword around. You want to know exactly where to go. And so we're told who it is, is the devil. And we're told in verse 12, the devil has a lot of helpers. Demons, principalities, powers in heavenly places. It's interesting to me that not everybody believes in a literal devil. I speak to people who smile at the idea very politely. They look at me feeling sorry because I'm so naive, so dumb, so simple-minded enough to believe that there's a literal being of evil called the devil. 
70% of America, according to a Gallup poll, believes in the devil, but half of them who believe in the devil believe it's just a principle, a symbol of evil. And the other half believe in a personal devil, a real devil. The idea of a devil is made fun of. It's the stuff songs are made out of. Devil with the red dress on, devil in her heart, etc., etc. Or it's the stuff comedy skits are made out of. You know, perhaps Dana Carvey's Church Lady. Could it be Satan? And the country laughed during the years that this church lady spoke about the devil, blamed everything on the devil. Well, that may be the gospel according to Dana Carvey, but the gospel according to Jesus Christ reveals that Jesus knew and said the devil was a real being. Jesus said in Luke chapter 10, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. He was there when it happened. Jesus also speak of the devil, spoke of him as being a personal being. He said to Peter in Luke chapter 22, Peter or Simon, Simon, Satan has asked for you that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you. So the Bible reveals that there is a superpower who fell from heaven at some time past, probably before the creation of the earth. His name is, was Lucifer, became known as the devil, which means accuser or slanderer. He goes by a lot of different names. He is the enemy of God and he is the enemy of your soul. He's real and he's personal. Dwight L. Moody put it this way, I believe in the devil for two reasons. Number one, because the Bible declares it to be so. Number two, because I've done business with him. And if you've ever done business with the devil, you know he's real. Nobody has to convince you. If you've never been hassled by him at all, then maybe it's time for you to examine your spiritual life. Because if you belong to God, if you're God's friend, you're going to meet a new enemy. Now, i got to put it this way to you. I'm comforted in the fact that Satan is my enemy. It makes me happy to know he's my enemy. You say, oh, really? Are you like an idiot? No. I'm thinking very clearly, very lucidly here. Charles Spurgeon said... It's comforting to know that Satan is my adversary. I would rather have him as my adversary than my friend. At one time, I was on his team. He was my boss, and he pays good wages. The wages of sin is death. But I quit before payday. By the grace of God, and the free gift of God, the scripture says, is eternal life. Now, as a Christian, he fights against us. Because of that battle, it's incumbent upon the believer to always have the right armament readily available. So move with me down to verse 12 for a moment and look at something else. Look at who he's aligned with. We do not wrestle. Look at the word wrestle. It suggests struggle, a fight, a war. We do not wrestle against flesh and blood or human beings 
but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in heavenly places. So Satan has helpers, a well-organized host of demonic beings who do his bidding. Now you might say, oh, I get hassled by the devil. Satan's doing this to me and Satan's doing that. Don't flatter yourself. Satan probably doesn't take personalized interest in you. He's got a lot of help and would assign one or two or several of his demons to your case. A book you, you all ought to read, if you haven't already, is by C.S. Lewis called The Screwtape Letters. How many have read that book? I read it years ago, several times, and I would recommend that book. It's a book on the strategies of the devil from Satan's perspective in training up young tempters uh, to do his bidding. Okay, I I've got good news and bad news. Here's the bad news. There's not five or ten or even 200 or 300 demons that help Satan. The Bible would indicate that a third of all of the original angels fell in Satan's rebellion. That's a lot. A third of the heavenly hosts fell. Jesus said, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Revelation chapter 12 puts it metaphorically that Satan drew with his tail a third of the stars of heaven with him. And the stars are given personality in Revelation 12. So we know they're demonic beings. So that's, that's the bad news. But I, I meet a lot of Christians who camp on the bad news. They know there's so many demons, they look for a demon behind every bush, behind every car, behind every intersection. Now the good news is there's two-thirds left. And that's the fact that so many of us neglect to remember in balancing out the truth. Oh, there's so many demons and the devil. Yeah, okay. But there's two-thirds who are for you. One-third is against you with Satan. Two-thirds are for you with God. And if God be for you, who can be against you? And God lives inside of you, and greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. So would you please stop living a defeated life, worrying about Satan, the devil, this? Enjoy the battle. Dispatch, in the name of Jesus, some of those angels who are for you. Do you remember the story in the book of 2 Kings about Elisha and his servant Gehazi and they come to the town of Dothan and uh, Gehazi looks up and he sees that the Syrian army is encamped around the town and he thinks we're toast, we're dead, we're dead meat, there's just a couple of us in this city, the whole army is posed against us and they hate my master Elisha, they're going to kill him and kill me, he gets all worked up and Elisha prays and he goes, oh Lord. Open his eyes. And he says to his servant and to the others with him, Don't be afraid. There are more that are with us than are, that are with them. And the Lord opened the eyes of Elijah's servant Gehazi, and he looks up beyond the Syrian army on the hill surrounding the area, and he sees 
the hosts of the armies of God, the angels of God. Now a shift takes place in Gehazi's thinking. At first he thought, poor us, woe is me. And then he sees the real situation and he starts feeling sorry for those poor Syrians. Woe are they. Because there are more that are for us than that are with them. And that's the truth in the spiritual realm. So keep that in mind as you enter this battle. Um, You'll notice in verse 11 that his tactics are spoken of. Put on the whole armor, and we'll discuss that in a moment, the whole armor of God, that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. The word wiles means schemes, tricks, tactics, plottings. It is a word that is used of an animal that would stalk its prey and then suddenly pounce upon that prey. And Satan is seen as a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. He has tactics. Uh, Don't underestimate him. Don't overestimate him, but don't underestimate him. Satan has studied human nature ever since man was on the earth. Satan watched, observed, plotted his strategies. And they've been very successful. He's a clever foe. When it comes to um, Satan's approach, you could historically in the church age sum it up by two words. Aggression, number one. Infiltration, number two. Aggression was the persecution of the early church, the Roman government against the Christians, the killing of millions of Christians because they stood up for Christ and dared to defy Rome, or the persecution of Christians by other religions that still goes on today. And it's a powerful tactic, it's a frontal assault, but it's been largely ineffective. Because every time Satan destroys a portion of the church, it usually seems that the church grows larger in that area. Where persecution has been the heaviest study of church history, the church has blossomed. Case in point, the nation of China. Ever since the Cultural Revolution, when missionaries were outlawed and the punishment was death or imprisonment, there have been more Christians in that country, like they say up to 120 million, that have grown since the Cultural Revolution. So there's Satan, he sees the fire of the church and he tries to stamp it out with his foot and all it does is create little fires that spread other places. But he has a second tactic and that's been very effective, infiltration. You know the old saying, if you can't beat him, join him. So Satan decided, I'll join the church. If persecution won't work, pollution will. So he infiltrated the church with false doctrine compromising believers. Jesus predicted it would happen. He said a a man went out to sow wheat, but an enemy came at night and sowed tares among the wheat. So in any congregation, you have true believers as well as some false believers. Some who are there, but they don't really follow Christ wholeheartedly. They're not really sown in good ground. There's no fruit that is being produced. 
There's tares among the wheat. Now that has been a very effective tactic and wile of the enemy. Now we're not ignorant of that, the Bible says. We're not ignorant of his devices. We should keep them in mind as we get into this um, uh, teaching of the armor of God. Let's look at some of the particular weapons. Um, Verse 14, stand therefore, having girded your waist with truth. You can see on our little dummy, no no offense, Claudius, uh, a leather belt. The belt is what held everything together for the soldier. Soldiers wore a tunic of sorts, and, and it wasn't always this nice. It was basically a plain piece of cloth. Sometimes it had embroidery on it. But it had a hole for the head, holes for the arms, and it, it sort of hung loosely from the soldier. He would wear that just for normal day-in and day-out operations. But that long, flowing robe would be dangerous, could get in the way. It would prohibit mobility. You could trip over it, do a face plant. So you would gird up the loins, it was called, or tuck the extra material into the belt, which speaks of preparation, freedom to move. Also on the belt hung the sheath for the sword. So that was sort of the centerpiece. Everything sort of revolved around the ability to move by having the belt in place, sword on the belt, and the ability to tuck the robe into the belt. The idea of girding yourself with the belt of truth is that you should be prepared with the truth. Peter said, gird up the loins of your mind. It's a Bible way using this as the analogy. Get your mind prepared for action, some translations say. When the Jews ate the Passover, God told them, have your belt on and your sandals on your feet. Your belt is there so you can tuck your robe into it and run with the sandals on your feet. Get ready for action. So the idea of the belt of truth, or as the old King James might put it, gird up, the girdle of truth, is that we should be prepared with the truth of God. You, you could look at that as being prepared in, in the scripture, knowing the word of God. But I think what it means in verse 14 when it says, girded your waist with truth, is that you and I should be prepared in the battle by living truthful lives. It's the attitude of truth. It's not you have to know every verse of the Bible to get into this battle, because we're going to get to that with the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. But the idea is that as a Christian soldier, you should live authentic lives, lives without hypocrisy. Be what you say you are. You're always ready, because truth is the thing that holds everything together in your life. It's the centerpiece of your life. The second is the breastplate. Verse 14, stand therefore, having girded your waist with truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness. A breastplate extended from the neck down to the waist and was often either A, a piece of leather, and from that leather was hung bits of hoof or uh, bone or even pieces of metal to provide a buffer. 
for weapons that would come against you, or it was a, a thin piece of plated metal. The idea of the breastplate was pretty obvious. It would guard your heart, your lungs, your vital organs, your intestines. So your heart, which, by the way, in the Bible is seen as your thought life, you think with the heart. Your thoughts are produced in the heart. In the Bible, the bowels or the intestines are symbolic of your emotions. Put on tender bowels of mercy, the old King James says, or put on that, that attitude, the feelings of compassion toward other people. Here's the point. Even as the breastplate covered the heart and the vital organs, righteousness guards your heart and your mind. And if there's two areas Satan will attack you in, it's your thoughts and your feelings. Your heart, your feelings, your thought life will be attacked by Satan, and you need that breastplate of righteousness. Well, what does it mean, the breastplate of righteousness? Some say, well, it's our righteous position in Christ. I'm in Christ positionally, so I'm protected. I, I think there's truth to that, but I think it means something more practical than that. It means a practical righteousness. It means right behavior. Not perfection, but right behavior. I want you to turn with me to a, a section of scripture that I think will um, clear it up a little bit. Uh, turn with me to the book of 1 John chapter 3. Now keep in mind what I just said. Satan is the accuser, but he's going to have a difficult time accusing you, putting thoughts into your mind of your unworthiness, of your this, of your that, and all those feelings, if your lifestyle, by and large, is a righteous lifestyle. If there's practical righteousness, those accusations won't go very far. You won't entertain them much. In 1 John chapter 3, look at how John writes about righteousness. Verse 7, little children... Let no one deceive you. He who practices righteousness is righteous, just as he is righteous. He who sins is of the devil, for the devil sinned from the beginning. For this purpose, the Son of God was manifested that he might destroy the works of the devil. Whoever has been born of God does not sin. Now, don't let that trip you up. Keep in mind the context means you don't habitually, continually practice a lifestyle of sin. That's over. That's the past life. For his seed remains in him, and he cannot habitually, continually practice sin, because he has been born of God. In this, the children of God and the children of the devil are manifest. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is he who does not love his brother. So can you see that John isn't talking about some ethereal, positional righteousness of being in Christ, though that's true, but something more practical. A day-by-day -day righteous adherence to the precepts and the truth of God. Skip down to verse um, 18. My little children, let us not love in word or tongue, but in deed and truth. That's practical, isn't it? And by this we know that we are of the truth and shall assure our hearts before him. Now watch this. For if our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart, and he knows all things. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence toward God. This, then, is speaking of practical righteousness. One of the common problems of the Christian 
is that of having a condemning heart. Your heart condemning you before God. But what he says here is by this, verse 19, we shall know we are of the truth and shall assure our hearts before him. Now I have a note in my margin of my Bible. You might have one too. The word assure, it says here, means shall persuade or set at rest. A better translation, it will tranquilize the heart. As those thoughts are assailed, that breastplate of righteousness, not perfection, but you see your life has changed and by and large you are conformed to Christ and imitating him and obeying him. Those thoughts come and they don't stay long because your heart is set at rest by the righteousness because of a changed life that you have. Your heart is tranquilized, soothed. The alarm of your heart is soothed because of the righteousness that has been produced in your life. That, that's the idea of the breastplate. It protects the vital organs. It protects the mind and the heart. Well, let's go, go back. And I'll speed up. Third on the list is that your feet have the right kind of shoes. Verse 15, having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. <laughs> I'm glad they put up the uh, pictures on the screen because you have to see it for yourself. You see the studs on the bottom of the shoes? They're like little hobnails that stick out to provide traction so you don't slip. You have a firm footing. Sometimes the enemy would, would put stakes in the ground and hide them so that in a battle you might fall on his ground and in falling it would poke right through your lungs or uh, your side if you didn't have the right armament on. It was sort of like first century landmines. The nails on the bottom of the sandals provided traction so you could stand in the battle and not fall. But notice that the, the toes are not closed, it's just a sandal. Well, I'd hate to fight in those kind of shoes, but nonetheless, the idea is having traction, having footing. Being prepared to stand firm, having your feet firmly planted in the gospel of peace. It could mean, A, you're always ready to preach the gospel. That you look for encounters, whether you're on an airplane or in the market or in school, and somebody asks a question, you give them the gospel. Or it could mean, this is what I believe it means, in a battle, you are confident because you have peace with God. The gospel of Christ has brought you peace, and it's the peace you experience in the battle because you know you're his. It's the effect of the gospel in your life. Then he goes on. Verse 16, Above all, taking the shield of faith with which you are able to quench the fiery darts of the wicked one. Now, you have a conflict here. The picture on the screen shows a big square shield. The uh, mannequin shows a little round shield. That's because there were two shields. This little frisbee-looking shield was used for hand-to-hand -hand combat when you used a short sword. The big shields were used in the battle lines, two feet, two and a half feet by four and a half feet. And these shields would interlock together so that you form a an embankment, a solid line. And the idea is that you would march together, soldier and soldier, lines of them walking against the enemy, 
forming this huge barricade. That's how the line would advance. Behind that line, the big shields, was a line of soldiers with the second shield and the short sword. So one would prohibit the arrows from coming in or the fiery darts, and the line behind you would have a short, a small shield attached to the left arm, giving the right arm freedom to move and uh, go against the enemy in hand-to-hand combat. Now, we're going to show you a little clip just for a few seconds of a movie called The Gladiator, which sort of shows how that Roman shield worked. Okay, we could have perhaps shown more, but the idea is that you put the shields together and the fiery darts can't get through. The fiery darts was a tactic of the enemy back in those days. And you, you take the arrow, and at the tip of it, you'd have cotton soaked in pitch. They'd light it on fire. They'd shoot the arrow. When the pitch hit, it would splatter. So you'd have fire fall. If you've ever seen the movie Gladiator, the beginning of it, it looks like a, a fire bomb has gone off. And it's these fiery darts that were launched that created smaller fires splattering on all of the soldiers in various directions. The shield of faith speaks of not saving faith as much as your day-to-day trusting God. When you trust God, you can stand against anything Satan has to offer. We spoke about that in one of the questions. The fiery darts come your way. The fiery darts of doubt, accusation, blasphemous thoughts, thoughts of lust, temptation. Have you ever had a thought that's come into your mind and you thought, where did that come from? That just came from out of nowhere. And then you feel ashamed of it. That's a fiery dart. That's where you have to stand up with the shield of faith. And let me explain how it works. You make a declaration, perhaps. I trust God. I believe God. No matter what the outward exterior uh, experiences and circumstances, I believe God will get me through this. Or, number two, you pray. Lord, I trust you. I don't know why this is happening, but I believe in your love for me, and I ask for your strength. That's a prayer of faith. That's raising up the shield. Or think of it in terms of those big uh, rectangular shields being locked and linked together and hundreds of men advancing forward. You call up somebody. You find a brother or a sister. You share your issue, your problem, your temptation, and you get the strength of another group of Christians, a support group that helps you advance against the enemy with that shield of faith that is created by soldiers marching together. Then we go on and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. The helmet protected the head, protected the mind. I'm not going to get into much of the history because of time. But the idea is that your mind is protected, your Command central is protected. The helmet of salvation. Satan assails our thought life. It's important that we're able to think clearly. Now, I meet some Christians who take an anti-intellectual stand. Well, it doesn't matter what you know. It's not important about your, your mind isn't important. Your thought life isn't important. What's important is that you feel this attitude of love and conviction toward God. I don't know, 
Peter said, grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. I think it's important that Christians accumulate Bible knowledge and be able to think clearly during a time of a battle. You'll stand your ground. The helmet of salvation. I think what it means is this. You're in a battle. You're confident in the battle because you know in your mind the outcome of your salvation is that you will be kept. He which began a good work will continue it until the day of Christ. You have confidence in the work of salvation being an ongoing work that has a goal in the mind of God. And you think through that clearly during a time of a battle. Praying, oh, oh I missed one, and the sword of the Spirit which is the word of God. The word sword here is makaria in the Greek, and it speaks of a short sword. It's about 16 to 18 inches long. My son had a replica of one that I bought him in England, but it's so chewed up and beat up over the years, I didn't even bring it. But the makaria, the short sword, was to make decisive jabs at the enemy when he would attack you. It wasn't the broad sword that was two to three feet long. It was the short sword. That's the idea. Short, decisive blows. And that's the idea of the word of God here. The best example, I was going to have you turn to it, we don't have the time, is go and study in Matthew 4 the temptations of Jesus. And every time Satan attacks him, Jesus gives a decisive blow to Satan by using the word of God. Command these stones be made bread. It is written, Jesus said, you will not tempt the Lord your God. Throw yourself down. His angels will take charge over you and bear you up, lest you dash your foot against the stone. It is written, said Jesus. And he said that three times, strategically applying the scripture to a particular temptation. Here is the value of studying the Bible verse by verse, not a psalm and a gospel only, but all of it. It gives you an arsenal of truths that when you are in a spiritual battle, facing a temptation, facing a false doctrine, you can pull out that scripture and you can stand on it or use it or declare it in such a way that it does damage to the enemy in that attack. The best example I know of is the temptation of Jesus and him saying it is written three times. Praying always, this is the last or the seventh weapon, praying always with all prayer and supplication in the spirit, being watchful to this end with all perseverance and supplication for all the saints and for me that utterance may be given to me that I may open my mouth boldly to make known the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains that I might speak it boldly as I ought to speak. It's interesting to me. Something I just noticed as I was reading. The context is what? Spiritual warfare. And in the context of spiritual warfare, who are you supposed to talk to? God, not the devil. I've been in meetings where people have stood up and they start praying to Satan. Now, devil, we want you to know tonight that we bind you and we cast you out. And some of them will speak lengthy conversations with the devil. Why? Doesn't the Bible say resist the devil, not carry on long conversations with the devil? No, no. When you fight Satan, don't talk to him. 
talk to Jesus, talk to God directly about the devil. Again, don't flatter yourself. Sometimes we think, the devil, it's me and the devil, I'm against the devil. He has no interest in you personally. The only interest he has in you and me is how we relate to God. He's trying to hurt God, hurt the heart of God. He's the real enemy in Satan's mind. The fact that God loves you is why Satan and his minions attack you, that they might hurt the purpose and the love heart of God. I love the old saying, Satan trembles when he sees the weakest saint upon his knees. Oh, you won't make Satan tremble by saying, I bind you, Satan. I speak to you. Why? He didn't go, ooh. I, I hear of the devil being bound for this. Would you do me a favor next time you bind him? Bind him for good, because he keeps coming back. It's a little temporary band-aid that works in your mind, what, a night, two nights, a week? Make sure it's done forever, but it never is. The authority comes in prayer. Talk to God about the devil. Praying always. And I don't think that means 24 hours a day praying, mumbling under your breath, I'm praying always. Can't answer that right now. The idea of praying always means in every occasion, at every circumstance, not just at mealtime, not just on Sunday, not just when you go to bed at night, but in all occasions, it becomes the course of your life to turn everything over to the Lord in prayer because of all of these weapons, you have several defensive weapons. You have two offensive weapons, the word of God, the sword of the spirit, and prayer. Those things are the attack weapons. Those are the big guns, so to speak. Every soldier needs reinforcements in a battle. And I got to tell you, when you stop in the battle and you pray and you ask God for those reinforcements, now you're taking out the big guns. Your big guns are you talking to God in prayer. Let's finish up the chapter so you'll say at least I finished the book. But that you also may know my affairs and how I am doing. Tychicus, a beloved brother and faithful minister of the Lord, will make all things known to you, whom I have sent to you for this very purpose, that you may know of our affairs, that he may comfort your hearts. Peace to the brethren and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be with all those who love the Lord Jesus Christ in sincerity. Amen. I'm going to close with a letter. It was given to a pastor that I know in Southern California from a congregant. This Christian had struggled long in his walk with the Lord, knew he was in a spiritual battle, and he crafted the letter in warfare language, requesting further help. He says, Dear Pastor, please send me some ammunition. He was requesting Bible study tapes. Please send me some ammunition. The battle lines are drawn. The trenches are being dug. And I am not one of those to be caught shame-faced when our commanding officer returns. When the record is being reviewed, I want it written that the soldier in question, namely me, after repeatedly disobeying orders and going AWOL during wartime alert, finally donned his armor reported back to his commanding officer, fought courageously and fearlessly without retreating, hit the enemy with everything he could get his hands on, 
and inflicted heavy damage in strategic areas to the credit of his patient and forgiving commanding officer. Key phrase is this, everything he could get his hands on. God has given us an arsenal, salvation, truth, righteousness, all of the ability to stand something else. This breastplate has two sides in the dummy. Often the Roman breastplate was only on the front, not the back, because the Roman soldier was never to turn and retreat in a battle. You were to face your enemy head on, not run away from him. You are to flee temptation, not flee the enemy. You can't get away from him. His, his minions are, are in every situation. So you face him head on, strategically. Keep your footing. Keep your mind about you. Make sure that the accusations don't go deep because you've got the breastplate of righteousness on. Always ready to share your faith. Confident that your salvation continues to the very end. 